Almost got it right. The kingdom of God number three was back in July. We're studying the kingdom of God in our study of God and government. And it's a really, really important topic for Americans to get hold of. It always has been since the colonial days for us to understand as Christians how the Bible specifies that believers in Christ in the time in which we live interface with human government. How do we relate to it? I recently read a book because I had to do something besides uh, various variegated theologies. I read a book on our founding called um, By the Hand of Providence by Rod Craig. I highly recommend that book. By the hand of providence. I don't know much about Rod Craig, but I saw that. I took a chance. Maybe that's a pretty good, it was a really good sort of historical sweep looking at the providential work of God and the attitude of the people in this country and its founding. Uh, in the, from the colonial period to the, through and through the founding of, with the Constitution, which covered the eight-year war for independence. We're worried about the Ukraine war. It's going too long. Eight years that we fought basically hiding behind trees and jumping out at the last second, shooting as many as we could, and then running. <laughs> There's a lot of trees here, and there were a lot of people. That, well, small population, but a lot of people were interested in freedom and liberty and the rights of, of freeborn Englishmen, as they understood it. And um, what's interesting to me as I work through what Washington said, what the Continental Congress said, how they dealt with the question of God, the concerns of God. What's amazing to me is how they often referred to him. In Washington's inaugural uh, oath of office, he, he did some interesting things as the first president. You know, he, he said, no, don't call me excellency, call me Mr. President. He said, but in his, in his oath of office, unbidden, the Bible that he swore on, he kissed at the conclusion. As an educated person raised in a biblical or a Christian culture, and it was a Christianized culture, they were all biblically saturated, and they all had learned to read because there's a Bible to read. He knew that you kiss the son, that you not perish because his wrath may soon be kindled. He knew that's the, the attitude of the rulers of the earth to humble themselves before God. So you, you bow and kiss the son was, was his symbolic gesture as he kissed the Bible because we can't see Jesus, but we've got the word alive and powerful in the, in the scriptures that testify to him. That's one interesting thing he did. He also, without it being part of the, the oath of, of office, he added um, four important words that we now say without thinking, and we don't even know we're quoting George Washington. He wrote these four words that he said at the end of his oath. Do you know what the four words are? So help me God. It wasn't written from someone else on the oath of office. It wasn't part of the understood thing that repeat after me. This is what he said as his conclusion of his self-commitment. As far as God will help me, I'll do it. And now we say it at the end of every I once knew a man that came here, immigrated to the United States, almost by defection. He left the communist party of the country uh, that he was in on a, on a vacation, and he didn't go home when, it, when his vacation was over, and he applied for citizenship here. And um, had a season where we got to minister with him here. 
And he was absolutely heartbroken after all the citizenship process he went through that at the oath that they swore in whatever local magistrate, they didn't require, so help me God. Nobody said it. They said their oath all together, and they stood and, and said it, and there was no Christianity. And he was, he's a Christian. He was so heartbroken that it was separated. And if only I could tell him, um, actually, Washington added it by his volition. You can say that. You can say, so help me God, and join the spirit that founded this country of fear of the Lord. But anyway, what, what, what strikes you as you listen to these people writing about God when they address him, they knew to call him God. They had all kinds of other things they called God. They had a weird way of speaking. They would say a relative clause. That being, comma, which or who. And then they would describe him by his actions or his essence. And they would always use that one, that being, that providence. And, they would, and that would be a kind of an impersonalization of the personal God to, call, to, call, to refer, reference God by virtue of providence. It was a common euphemism people would use. But they also knew to call him God. They knew the Lord Jesus Christ. But they would, in their, in their addresses, in their writings, they would again and again and again say, that being who by his great abundant kindness and generosity toward us has drawn from us every part. They would go on and on in a way to heighten the praise and exaltation of him. I'm, I believe they weren't trying to impersonalize God. I believe they were trying to prostrate themselves before him with their language to exalt God to the high position that he should occupy in our hearts, which no matter how high we think of him, it's not high enough because of infinite righteousness and glory. And that was the attitude these people had in the founding. And so today we kind of, without historical context, we look at the war for independence and the Continental Congress and say, well, Romans 13, you're supposed to submit to the governing authorities. One prominent pastor who will resist government overreach in his ministry and his large church has often said that the, what they did was unsanctioned by the scriptures because um, because they rebelled against an existing God-delegated government. And, and I disagree with this fellow in several key places. It's a difficult circumstance. You actually have to read the Declaration to understand where they're coming from. And not just the first paragraph and the last words, you know, our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. You have to read the whole thing. They make a case. Why? But... They did it in the fear of God, I contend. And it wasn't for all the reasons that the revisionists say it was for. It was because they considered themselves Englishmen with constitutional responsibilities and requirements that weren't being met. Regardless of your opinion of that uh, decision, of that warfare, <laughs> regardless of how you think about uh, the founding, we have been thinking since the colonial days about government and our role with God and how we relate to government. And it has always been for Americans. And I'm talking to Americans. That's why I'm talking about this. You've got to minister in the context in which you minister. It's always been something that we've connected to our creator. 
The further we as a people drift from God, the more we misuse the statements of our founders. For example, the great letter of Jefferson to the Baptists of Danbury, Connecticut, talking about only in this letter, not in any of our formal documents, but in a letter saying there should be a wall of separation between church and state. That language is now more emphatic in the way we operate as a people than the actual language of our Constitution. It's kind of the spirit that has taken root, and we don't know how to relate church and state. I'll tell you in summary about that topic, that if you truly understand what the church is, you can't call it a 501c3 uh, organization. That, that's not the church. It's not a building. You can't eradicate it from the earth unless you kill all the people. And we know that's not going to be possible because God has a plan for his church in history. But the church is a group of people. When Jefferson said that, he was talking to people that were part of the same church as as he was, provided he was actually a believer in Christ. He wasn't a Baptist, but he was in the same church. Because the church means those people who are believers in Christ on earth or in heaven in this age. It's all the people. In that sense of the biblical definition of church, how are you going to have a functioning state composed of Christians if there is an impenetrable separation between the church and state? See, that, the, the idea that he's writing is a bad idea of what church is. He means like the Catholic church or the Baptists or the, you know, the Congregationalists or the Presbyterians or the Quakers. He meant the different denominational organizations, the visible expressions of the body of Christ. But what's happened is you individual believer need to leave that Christianity at home because more and more when you go forth, you're in the state. Who pays for the roads that we travel on to go to church? The state. Should we be allowed to use the roads to go to church? See, I mean, it gets crazy in how this gets applied. Well, nobody means it that way. We mean in the schools. The government-run schools, you can't preach the gospel in the government-run schools. That's a, that's a violation of the constitutional requirement of separation of church and state. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Are we talking First Amendment? Let's talk about what the First Amendment actually says. And then let's talk about how this works as an individual constituent of the body of Christ and in this republic as citizen, a functionary of state. In the founding, they couldn't have meant the separation of Christians from the culture. They couldn't have meant that because the whole culture was Christian. And that's the problem. We're talking past the, the issues because we don't understand the issues anymore because this government was founded and made for a religious and moral people and would be suitable for no other. So I'm just trying to paint the picture of where we are as a culture because it's really important for us to understand our role in the processes that we're in and where our hope lies. The ultimate goal I have for you today in this discussion is to absolutely disconnect our hopes, our dreams, our desires, our expectation of good things from God, to disconnect those directly from electoral, political or even militaristic process. And military is just diplomacy by other means. Military is a function of politics. I'd rather we did it with suits instead of suits of armor, but 
it's the same. It's a continuum. What I'm saying is you have to be salt and light and you have to function within your duties of your citizenship, but you cannot make that process and that, that engagement be your hope because we know biblically, prophetically, where this culture and all other cultures are tending. So-and-so died in 9-11. At the World Trade Center, one of the remarks that was made back then, in 2001, 22 years ago, was that they died in their service just trying to make the world a better place. Those people that were bombed in the 93 bombing, they were trying to make the world a better place. Those soldiers killed in the barracks bombings, those soldiers, those sailors killed on the bombings of our, of our ships, they were trying to make the world a better place. Reach out and touch somebody's hand. Make this world a better place if you can. Well, without any revelation from God, without him telling us where we've come from, where we're headed, what it's all about, how it's focused on Christ, how the resurrection answers all the problems, without any revelation from God, we might scrabble together uh, any, any, one, any number of architectural plans for the Tower of Babel. We might try to find a way to improve our lot by unifying fraternity, equality, equality um, liberty, liberty um, fraternity, equality, um, as the French Revolution proclaimed in, a, in an atheistic uh, screed that bears no resemblance, in my opinion, to what we did here in the colonies. What am I saying? What are we talking about? Our hope has to be in the Lord. And we know what God said about history. And so dispensationalists are often criticized for saying that it makes no sense to polish a sinking ship. Are you listening? It makes no sense because you're not going to improve the circumstance. The world is headed to a a satanically inspired, attempted one world government, which we believe from Daniel is a revival of the Roman Empire. Iron and clay mixed together. And it won't hold, and it's a seven-year experiment that ends with Christ shutting it down. And that's where history's going. And that's pessimistic. You're saying that no matter what I do, I'm not going to make it better? What's your mission? What did Christ, who is our Lord, give us as our mission? See, the, the social gospel, it was never the mission. And, and we have to be careful with that. Well, let's talk about the kingdom. Some of the, that's my introduction. Let's talk about the kingdom a little bit. And we've discussed the kingdom of God as a twofold description in the Bible. I don't see three meanings for this phrase, the kingdom. I see two meanings for this phrase. Now, y'all watch this. What are the two senses of the kingdom? Well, the first, the kingdom of God is consistently used in the Old Testament and New Testament as the realm that someone rules in. That's the dominion of his kingship, the king being present ruling, and then in his rulership, he's actually expressing that rule. He's doing it. What happened with the um, Iran-funded terroristic attacks yesterday in Israel is a demonstration that the 
king, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sitting on David's throne, is not there right now. It's proof. That's not going to happen in the kingdom as prophesied. So you've got a, a realm, a king, and rulership. And the first sense we understand this to be used is the overall theological sense of the universal kingdom. And we spent a couple of messages back in June, July on this, that there's a universal sense where God is the king and everything he made is his dominion. And that is not usually what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the kingdom. That's really important to get this. When we as casual speakers in Christendom talk about serving the kingdom, we're talking about this. We're talking about doing God's work, you know, because God's our Lord and master and we're serving him. And so we just kind of summarize. And then we say, well, there's all kinds of controversy about the interpretation of prophecy and eschatology. So we really can't, so we really can't uh, say too much about the prophecy. And that's, I think that's a mistake. I think no theologian who has ever had any impact has backed down from actually saying what he thinks about prophecy in the future. To say, oh, it's all going to pan out, and so, you know, we're just, we're just serving the kingdom, man. That's not part of the history of, of the faith. And um, if they had done that with the, the identity of Christ, if they had just stopped at Nicaea and not fully specified that he's the God-man and, and, and explained what the hypostatic union means, we would, be, we would not have a doctrine of the deity of Christ today. We never back down just because it's hard. We say, I don't know when we don't know, but we study and we keep working at it. And we have a pretty good outline picture of what the kingdom looks like from, especially Old Testament prophecy. But the first sense of the universal kingdom is that God is sovereign, right? And this is really important to get. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now in glory. And it says in, first, in Psalm 110, that the rod of or the scepter of God's judgment is going to go forth into Zion. From that exalted position, it's going to go forth. He's going to come to rule and judge and set up this kingdom. But we're not there yet. Jesus is glorified and exalted and next to his Father in dominion over all that is his creation. The second sense, though, is what we're calling the mediatorial sense. And this is what the Bible usually means when it talks about the kingdom, the biblical doctrine of the kingdom is this topic, is the mediated delegated rule. What do we mean by mediatorial? Well, it's, it's, as we said, it's in the middle, media in the middle. It's between God and man. So you have somebody between God and man. It's this delegated rule of God. Remember that? We talked this kind of review. That's the idea of the mediatorial kingdom. And we see it all through the scriptures. In in God, there is sovereignty, and he gets to make the plan. And in Revelation, we get to read it and say, okay, what's your plan? And that's what we see, is that sovereignty delegates for his own purposes and glory. He delegates this rule, and then we're responsible, and that's government. And, and I say, in God's sovereign will, he's chosen to make personal beings with delegated authority. Now, look, everybody, you are in a form of dominion in the sense that you have the ability to make choices. You came here today, that was a choice that you made, and no one made it for you unless your parents and your kid, and they dragged you to, to church. Praise the Lord. But you came by your own volition because you have that much dominion. You can do that. 
I heard a person talking uh, about the advances of science and technology and where things are going. 50 years from now, the way we live will be unrecognizable to the people. Kind of like in the 19, um, what was it, by the 30s, the horse and buggy systems are pretty much out. And by the 50s, no one's thinking in terms of horses and buggies at all. And the old people are like, you have no idea what it used to be like, kids. And, and um, what was it like before air conditioning? We went on retreats up north. <laughs> Schofield would, would ditch Dallas for the summer to go somewhere and retreat and, and, and study and write. I don't know who filled the pulpit in Dallas, but I guess the Christians just, they were hot. <laughs> um, but you have this capacity to make choices. It's a God-given delegation. This doctrine is under attack in philosophy and theology because we can't figure out how God could be truly in charge of everything, and yet we be free actors to make decisions. But that's really a philosophical debate that doesn't go anywhere. The revelation of Scripture and your life, an application of that doctrine from God, is that you have your choices to make and you're responsible. Now, you're not only a volitional agent. You have influences. You have things that have happened in your life that have set you up to think a certain way, but you still have, as you go forward, choices to make. That's why God's word, because the word of God is alive and powerful, and God can transform our thinking and renovate our hearts and help us think what he wants us to think. And so our conditioning and our background is what it is, but God's word is powerful, and it breaks through, and we start saying, okay, these decisions I made were not the decisions to make. These going forward are the right ones, and that's how government's supposed to work. The king writes his copy of Deuteronomy. In chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, the king will make his copy. Actually, I, I'm, see, I'm writing right to left. I'm such an American. I'm supposed to write right to left that way because it's Hebrew. He's supposed to write out his copy of Deuteronomy, and then he's supposed to go and rule as a delegated agent from God with that legislation already established, and he's just supposed to execute what the law says. He's supposed to carry it out. And that's that delegated idea. So you have revelation, you have this delegation, and then the mediator between God and that which he reigns. Now, God's sovereign, but he delegates some of that to uh, an intermediary, and that intermediary rules. And that's true, by the way, in human government today. But that doesn't make the human governments the kingdom. See, the human governments that are delegated authorities from God, they're failing. They're all enraging against God. How are the people in Psalm 2 doing it? How does someone raise up a a cry of revolt against the creator? Well, he takes a breath of God's air with his perfect mixture of various gases, most especially oxygen, which for many things is a poison, but for us is the vital thing that keeps us alive. And he takes that breath with an oxygen, uh, oxygenation system in his lungs with his blood that God superintends and administers within his physics and his biology and his chemistry. And the person takes a breath. I know physics is all, all biology, chemistry is physics. But anyway, he takes that breath and, and, and in his ability to send air through his vocal cords, which God, by the way, holds together by his powerful word. He uses language which God invented and gave us so that we could talk to him and know him. And he uses that language through the vibration of vocal cords to reject God, to, to, to rage against him, right? We're st- man is, is, a, is absurd in that there's a creator and we're made for him, by him, to serve him. 
And it's like little kids kicking against them, but eventually there's a reckoning. Eventually there's going to be a consequence. But, but I just want to point out, we all have this delegated capacity to rule. And you are ruling over that which God entrusted to you. This is called stewardship. Don't think of stewardship as the pastor's telling you about giving money, right? This church, we don't, in churches, when you have a stewardship sermon, you're supposed to do a stewardship sermon two or three times a year, maybe quarterly, where everybody knows they're supposed to give a a sufficient sacrificial portion of their income so that their uh, grainers will be full and their wine vats will be overflowing and uh, trust God, Malachi says, and we're supposed to give a stewardship talk so that everybody knows to give. But that's not what stewardship means. It doesn't mean your money. By the way, did you know we're trying to build a new building? (laughs) We need to be stewards of this building. This is a resource God gave us. We are. We need to take care of it. We need to take care of it for one another and for the message of the gospel that it represents as people outside come in. We need to polish our shoes, as it were. We need to take care of what God has entrusted us. That's stewardship. That's where you're ruling over that which has been delegated to you. Those people that took up the subscription said, I'll give $25 a year toward the building. And, they, and then they knew what they could go with because they had an idea, that subscription method. That's what built this old meeting house. We're not proposing that, but... That's how they built it. Uh, I don't know how God's going to provide this, but I know that it's going to be stewardship. It's going to be somebody says, I have these resources, or people are going to say, we have these resources. We want to see God glorify these resources. We're going to use them that way. But stewardship doesn't mean money. It's one aspect of it. It means your resources. It means your life. It means what God has entrusted to you, that you have been given this, and you can do one of two things. You can serve you with it, or you can serve God with it. And to serve God with it is to reinvest it And to serve self with it is to see it expire. And that's the way it works. Reinvest what God has given you in him. That's John 17, 1 through 5. But this is how volition works. You've been given what you've been given, and then you make choices that are free before you and God. And that was the whole point of of the war for independence. That was the whole point of independence, is that freedom means our ability to make decisions with our property. And that's what Englishmen get, and you're not letting us have that. And that's the spirit that founded this country. And it was never the collective. It was always individual volition, individual responsibility. And, we, and they had to really preach. They had to pound the pulpit, join or die. If we don't, if we don't come together, we'll, we're going to fall apart. Because the spirit was so individualistic, biblically individualistic, that you as an individual make your choices before God. We do have corporate work, but it's a secondary consideration. Your failure to love God is not my failure. My failure to love God is not your failure. See how that works? But if we both love God and serve him together, that brings glory to him and magnifies him in a way you couldn't do on your own. Sovereignty in God, um, in his sovereign will, he's chosen to establish this rule through willing human agency. That's a lot of words. See, this is the problem of determinism. It's saying, well, if God is really sovereign, then we're really not free. But no, in sovereign self-determination, God said, I'm going to make agents that are capable of doing what I, what, what I say by their own agency, by their own will. They're going to be able to choose me. They're going to be able to choose for me and do what I ask. And this is the grand flow of history through the whole Bible. The Bible is a, a demonstration of how it's going with man and agency, man and volition, man and the ability to serve God or not. 
But in that grand flow of history, we see there is a plan that God has his thumb on the scale, and he's going to bring human volitional agency to bear where a man is going to rule for him in his place on earth and bring glory and honor to him alone constantly. And that is the kingdom, the mediatorial or messianic kingdom. We talked about how, actually I actually have new material today, but we talked about how God told um, Adam and Eve to rule. By the way, the, 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 the image of God expressed in the responsibility to rule the works of God, that imagehood, that was not lost in the fall. It couldn't have been because God gives the same mandate in Genesis 9 after the fall. Remember that. If you really watch Genesis closely, we are sinful. We've, we've broken the image, but it's still here. We're a broken mirror reflecting God's glory, but we're still a mirror. Broken mirror, we might as well throw it away. No, God's got a plan. He's going to restore it. And, and so that's the flow of history, and that's what we're headed to, uh, is this coming kingdom. This is what I want to show. The twofold kingdom. God is the king over creation, and that's the universal kingdom. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, in the flesh of man, resurrected in glory, is going to rule as a delegated human on earth under God the Father in the messianic kingdom. And the problem we've got right now is that we're not in the experience historically of that messianic kingdom. The way it's described is not what we're experiencing in history. And it's very helpful apologetically to know that. When someone says, isn't the kingdom glorious to be in God's kingdom? Well, that's great if you mean you have a relationship with God and the sovereign God is your heavenly father, and that's great. But when someone reading the Bible says the kingdom is supposed to have no curse of nature, the kingdom is supposed to have no more death, the kingdom is supposed to be this glorious time, what's happening here? How is this the kingdom? The answer is, well, you're right, it's not. What we're experiencing is a relationship with God in anticipation of the historic experience of the kingdom. And you might say, yeah, but pastor, Colossians chapter 1 says we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son, and that is your identity, and you are ambassadors for a state that is coming. You're, in a sense, forerunners with a message, and it's very similar to John's message, forerunning the kingdom. But it's not exactly the same as John's message to Israel. You're telling the world to trust in Christ and to walk worthy of your calling, to disciple up and keep all that he commanded. Keep all that Jesus commanded. How does that relate to kingdom? Well, kingdom is the expression of dominion. So as disciples, are we not obeying our Savior? Is he not the King of kings and Lord of lords? See, you belong to this that's just not in effect right now. And to say that it is because Jesus is on a throne, so that means, means he's on David's throne, that's the error that plagues evangelicalism right now. He's not sitting on David's throne in heaven. He's on the Father's throne. So we have two kingdoms, the universal kingdom of God and the mediated Davidic kingdom that is promised, that is future, that is Jesus ruling from a throne in Zion that's promised in the Davidic covenant. And the messianic kingdom is the sense in which the kingdom is almost always used in the Old Testament. It's almost always talking about this this human historical rule by a man on earth under God miraculously forever. How is that going to happen? The Davidic covenant. It's almost always talking about that. Sometimes it metaphorically describes God as the king, as we saw in the Psalms, over the universe, but that's a different but related topic. The messianic kingdom 
is the sense in which the kingdom is almost always used in the New Testament also. It's almost always talking about the fulfillment of God's prophecies of historic rule of Christ in Jerusalem over the nations. Spiritualizing the kingdom happened early on in church history. The the biggest purveyor of this was Augustine, and the consequence of this was the ascendancy of a denominational affiliation called Rome that said, we have the kingdom and the kingdom is, in fill, is filling the whole earth. And nobody here, as far as I could tell, thinks that the Roman denomination is the kingdom on earth. You're not in the kingdom, people. See, this is the ecclesiology that Augustine provided because of bad eschatology. That we're going to do church this way because we don't understand the end-time prophetic theology because, well, the church is working on its theology. It's been a work in progress for 2,000 years. The idea of this mediated kingdom without the anointed ruler on earth is foreign to the Bible. That Jesus in my heart is the fulfillment of the promised kingdom is not what the Bible teaches. And Jesus is supposed to rule in your heart. And that's training and equipping and prepping you in this academy phase for rulership in the kingdom. And so, in a way, we're kind of discussing vocabulary. In a way. But see, what happens if I don't do this is that you think you're in the kingdom now because you're a Christian. And then you read kingdom passages in the Old Testament that talk about historic effects of the kingdom. And you say, wow, that, that, that hasn't happened. It must be metaphoric. It must be figurative speech. And then we lose our hope because this is not good enough. What we're in now, where people that started with a book and fear of God as a cultural norm and freedom for the individual to worship God and universal literacy, the highest literacy rates in the world in world history in New England in the colonial days and the early founding of our country, because we got a book to read, that that will start so well and end with the anti-Semitic moves of this administration, for example. It's crazy. It's, it's the demonstration, tragically, of what Paul prescribes, that the future for the human race before Jesus comes back is going to get bleak. The Father's throne in heaven is not David's promised throne in Zion. That's, a, that's really important to understand this. We're looking for a conflagrational event called the second advent when Jesus comes back, and it's described in Revelation 19. Do you know how you used to become the king? There are a couple of ways you could become king. You could be born to it and then survive. That's a hard thing to do, especially for babies and then young children. And so, but if you're born to be the heir and then you live long enough to become king and dad holds the thing together long enough, then mom squirrels you away so that the, the assassins can't get to you, then you can become king. But that's, that's actually not probably as common a way to become king as the other way. The other way to become king is by conquest. You know, and it wasn't just Julius Caesar that showed this, but everybody wants to be Caesar. The Tsar, he's the new Caesar in, in Russia. Historically, Caesar's the paradigm. And what is he? He's the general that won. He's, the, he's got the strongest military and he's got the best way to use it. And so he's in the strongest positions. So they say, you be the one. I'll take it, but I don't want it, but I'll take it. Now he becomes the emperor of the republic and it changes into the empire. And they kill him for it but it's still the empire now. The point is that you become king by military conquest. 
David demonstrated this in 1 Samuel 17. He's the one that can defend the people. So the people love him. And then in their hearts, they want him to be king because of the Goliath incident. The point is that I'm making is that this kingdom that we're talking about that's coming, it has to be taken by force and it will be. And that's Revelation 19. And that's not just metaphoric figurative language that he shows up on a white horse and saves Israel and destroys uh, his enemies with a sword that proceeds from his mouth, a rumphaya, a two-handed cavalry sword, sickle sword probably. Um, which is the word of God. So we're saying that Jesus hasn't done that yet, but he will. And so it's wrong to pretend like he has. He hasn't. And it's wrong to say that he has. And this is theology, and well, Christians can't be expected to do that. So we'll just talk about being in the kingdom. And it's a mistake. It hasn't been helped by the theologians from Dallas Seminary in the last 30 or 40 years who have said, tragically, that, well, we have a thicker way of reading the Bible. It's a thicker hermeneutic. And so there is a coming throne of David on earth, but right now we can see Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's also David's throne. So we're in the kingdom in a sense. And it, it undoes the future glory um, by what we would call an overrealized eschatology. The Messiah is prophesied to go from glory at the right hand of the Father, to Zion with God's judgment in Psalm 110, verse 2. And the, the verse people use in Psalm 10, 110, 1 to say we're in the kingdom because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father misses the nuance of verse 2 that a scepter is going to go forth from Yahweh to judge from Zion. We expect a move from the throne of God to Zion. That's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm holding out for, second advent of Christ. Jesus is presently exalted in glory at the right hand of power in Matthew 26, 64. Absolutely. You will see me at the right hand of power. And they, that's why they, they accuse him of blasphemy and heresy, and, and then they're going to crucify him. He says that to the religious leaders in Matthew 26, 64. And this is not the same thing. Being at the right hand of the Father is not the same thing as ruling in Zion over the earth in the Messianic kingdom. It's prior to it. That position of exaltation, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, is in anticipation of what's coming, of this dominion that we're going to see physically on earth in the coming kingdom, where we as the bride of Christ will rule with him over a a believing but not resurrected population for a thousand years, at which time there will be the final judgment and then the new heavens and new earth. So what we're saying in terms of biblical eschatology and reading Revelation as you read Matthew and Romans and the other books, what we're saying is that we have a glorified and exalted Christ at the right hand of the Father, and he is exercising dominion from that universal kingdom side of things, but there's coming this delegated expression here on earth. And it will be like when you vote. It'll be like when you sign up for military service. It'll be the functions of actual human physical government and history And that's not happening right now. It's not happening, tragically. And the closest you're going to see to something that approaches this would be a Christian culture that God put together here in the colonies with maximum willingness in the population and those ruling them to to fear God and to serve Him as a a, a benchmark, as as a foundational norm. 
And when you see something like that, watch what happens. God pours and pours and pours, and heaven opens with prosperity and riches and blessing so that we here, having no clue culturally where we've come from, are the envy of the world in terms of our prosperity and riches. That's wisdom. It's the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is where the blessing comes from. That's why we have what we have, but we're not the kingdom. And tragically, in terms of the theology of things, a lot of the framing originators thought we were the kingdom. We're going to solve it. We're going to bring it here. And post-millennialism has been a plague. It's a curse. It's a scourge. It doesn't, you're not going to bring the kingdom. And then Jesus say, come, come see how, how you did. He's going to bring it. And Revelation 3.21 is really a clear verse for me on the two thrones. There is not one throne in the Bible. And so if you see it, then you're in the kingdom. There are two thrones that we emphasize. Jesus says to the people of Ephesus, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down on my throne with me as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That's two, that's not one throne. It's the clearest reading. This is the universal kingdom and the mediated kingdom. That's the two senses that we're talking about, and that's what's coming in the, in the kingdom. You could conceive of the relationship of God's universal kingdom to the messianic kingdom of Christ on earth in Matthew 6.10, the way these two relate. God's sovereign desire and plan in the universal kingdom is going to be carried out explicitly and, and intentionally in the messianic kingdom. That's what, it, that's what defines it. But that's Matthew 6.10, and Jesus said, let's ask for it. He said, let it come. Let it come in the third-person imperative. We can't do that in English, but you can do that in Greek. I know we're almost done. The third-person imperative from Erkomai, let it come. That's thy kingdom come. The kingdom of you, your kingdom. So let it come. So you would say, let your kingdom come if you translate it into a static English. But I just want you to see, this is the verb, third person imperative, let it come, your kingdom. What does an imperative mood do? Is Jesus commanding the Father? Is teaching the disciples to give, give God imperatives? Now, he's saying that this is the will of the speaker. That's what the imperative mood does. This is what I want. Is that what you want? Do you want God to have his way? Do you want God to bring about his revealed will on earth? That's good, solid Christian prayer. When you know what God wants, you ask him for it. That's prayer. That's, that's, the, that's the big takeaway from all the example prayers of Jesus and his apostles. Let your kingdom come. And then he says that what I just said explicitly, let it come, genomai, let it happen. Toth the lame the will of you or the desire, your preference, let you have your way. Remember in the study of prayer in Jesus that he's always saying, God, have your own good way. Not as I will, Matthew 26, but let your will be done. Remember that? This is, this is ask anything in accordance with my will, and it'll be done for you. See, you need to know God in order to talk to him intelligently. You need to know what he wants. Do you know what God wants for you? He wants righteousness in every choice. His righteousness brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit through you. He wants you to love him back as you should for all that he's done for you in creation and in the new creation. He wants 
a relationship with you on his perfect, good, holy, righteous terms. See, I want God to have his way. And I'm describing some of the summary of Paul's prayers he reveals in the scriptures and in the, in the epistles. This is how Jesus prays, not as I will, but your will be done. This is the, the cry of the kingdom. This is the attitude, the heart attitude of the kingdom. And it's not an accident. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, the platform of the coming kingdom. We want God to have his way. Does that make me in the kingdom? Well, in the sense that I'm in Christ and I belong to the coming kingdom, yes. Am I experiencing the kingdom in history? No. But I'm being prepared for it. And I can see the difference. Boy, would it be nice to see righteous, enlightened, God-fearing, Christ-focused government in all the functionaries of government. Can you imagine if the president and the vice president and, and the, the, all the House of Representatives, not four of them, but all of them, and the Senate, all 100 senators, and then the nine on the Supreme Court, and then all their delegates, if they all believed that God's way was more important than their way, if they all had faith that God had them and that they trusted him and that they would not violate integrity and righteousness to secure their position, but they would do the right thing knowing God had them and they were doing it for him as an act of worship. Can you imagine what the government would be like? It would be, it would be, un, it would be something we've never experienced. It's coming. That administration of enlightened, Christ-focused sold out disciples serving him no matter what with full expectation of his glory being the greatest and highest thing. That's what the government will be when you and I function in it in the coming kingdom of Christ. See, there's the king and then there's his administration. There's his delegated rulers, you know, the dog catchers and stuff and all the other people. I suspect not tax collectors. (laughs) Let your will be done. Just as in heaven, it says, I'm putting it in English. I know in your Bible, as in, however it says in your, your English Bible, but it says, hos in urano, as, just as, it's a comparative, like in heaven. And then when you put chi after hos, it sets up that second wing of the comparison. Just as in heaven, so also let it be on earth. That's the, the Greek idiom, epitaskes, upon the earth. Not the cosmos, which is a synonym for Gaia, but the Gaia is, he's talking about this, the earth, the, the planet here on planet earth. And we're in a time where this is not happening. Jesus says, ask for this to happen. Let it come. In Jesus' day, this wasn't happening. It can't be the sovereign universal rule of God. It can't be what he's talking about. He's got to be talking about what Jesus came with John the Baptist offering, repent for the kingdom is at hand. That here, the Messiah of Israel is here to rule. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance of this kingdom. You need to walk in righteousness because it's a righteous kingdom. There's no room for wickedness in this coming kingdom. And he offered it and they rejected it. And that's Matthew. This is what we see. This is what we expect of, of, of God having his way. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom of God on earth. <clears throat> So you can see why, believers, that idea, that beautiful thought, that noble, lofty ideal is so attractive to us. We say, yes, I want that. Yes, I'll do that now. Good, but that doesn't mean we're historically experiencing it in politics and government and in history. So adopt it. Adopt the paradigm. God, have your way. Have it now. And the Bible ends. 
How does the Bible end? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life, for the hope we have in Christ and nowhere else. We thank you for the hardship in history that showcases the truth of what we're saying, that Jesus is not sitting in Zion forcing world peace with a rod of iron, but he will. He hasn't shut down the rulers of the earth in their opposition or rebellion, but he will. Father, he hasn't brought a reckoning that demonstrates empirically in history what you've told us by way of revelation, but he will. And we trust you, Father. We trust in him. We have our hope fixed entirely on that which is to come in him. Father, from that strong perspective, we can weather the storms of political and historical upheaval, of military crisis. We can be salt and light wherever we find ourselves to serve you in any billet, in any capacity. Strengthen us for it and give our leaders wisdom as they deliberate how best to bless Abraham. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.